Well, good evening. Thank you for coming out tonight or for tuning in online. We're recommencing our series in the book of Jeremiah. And we're going to consider the remainder of the ninth chapter. So our text uh, will be from verse 12. And uh, this will form our reading. So Jeremiah chapter 9, reading from verse 12. Uh, Who is the wise man that may understand this? And who is he to whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken, that he may declare it? For what the land perisheth and is burned up like a wilderness that none passeth through. And the Lord saith, because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice, neither walketh therein, but have walked after the imagination of their own heart and after Balaam, which their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed them, even this people, with wormwood, and give them water of gold to drink. I will scatter them also among the heathen, whom neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send a sword after them till I have consumed them. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider ye and call for the mourning women, that they may come and send for cunning women, that they may come. And let them make haste and take up a wailing for us, that our eyes may run down with tears, and our eyelids gush out with waters. For a voice of wailing is heard out of Zion, How we are spoiled, we are greatly confounded, because we have forsaken the land, because our dwellings have cast us out. Uh, Yet hear the word of the Lord, O ye women, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth, and teach your daughters wailing, and every one her neighbour lamentation. For death is come up into our windows, and is entered into our palaces, to cut off the children from without, and the young man from the streets." Speak, thus saith the Lord, even the carcasses of men shall fall as dung upon the open field, and as the handful after the harvestmen, and none shall gather them. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might, let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will punish all them which are circumcised with the uncircumcised, Egypt and Judah and Edom and the children of Ammon and Moab and all that are in the utmost corners that dwell in the wilderness. For all these nations are circumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we acknowledge uh, that it is uh, profitable, it's necessary, it's beneficial, and uh, we ask that you would open our eyes to the truth that is contained in this portion of Scripture, and that you would imprint uh, the message on our hearts. Uh, we ask uh, these things in Jesus' name, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Yeah, as you read uh, through the Bible, uh, or through a devotion book, or you hear a sermon or a podcast, Do you ever have one of those moments where you think, hey, that's where that verse comes from? I had no idea. Uh, I've heard it many times before. Uh, Maybe it's a verse that gets quoted often, or it's sung about in in Christian songs, or it's commonly attached to some pretty picture, and it's used to motivate or encourage or comfort. And yet we're not exactly sure of the location of the verse in the Bible, and certainly not the context in which it was written. 
Our text contains such verses. Perhaps you're familiar with verses 23 and 24. You may have heard them quoted. Perhaps you can roughly paraphrase them or someone has shared them with you or you you have seen them used as a post uh, online. Uh, It seems that the Apostle Paul may have had these verses in mind when he was writing his letters to the churches at Corinth. And uh, these two verses speak of the importance of glorying in the right things. Now, to glory in something is to celebrate it, to proclaim it, to boast about it, to have confidence in it, for it to be the source of one's contentment and happiness to depend upon it. And the problem is that mankind tends to glory in the wrong things. Now, our tendency to glory is not criticized. We're wired that way. We're designed to glory. And yet it is misplaced glory that is confronted. Verses 23 and 24 says, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. And what I'd like to do is to unpack the truth of these verses in their original context. So we could frame the intention of this study in a question. What was the original intention behind this challenge to glory in the right things? And then how does this apply to our current situation? Now, it's very easy to take verses 23 and 24 out of the context in which it finds itself. In fact, some commentators view these verses as stand-alone wisdom with no connection at all to what precedes it. However, I think that's very unlikely. Now, we have been in Jeremiah long enough now to understand uh, the overall context, hopefully. Okay, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, it's been about divine judgment. Um, and if you haven't grasped that point yet, you've probably slept through everything. So, well done. That's very impressive. Okay, but Jeremiah has been establishing the people's guilt, their refusal to repent, and hence the inevitability of God's judgment upon their sins. And this invitation to boast comes in the middle of yet another judgment section. And how I want to unpack the context is by considering two images and one question. And this will allow us to set the scene to properly understand the instructions about what to glory in and what not to glory in. Okay, so firstly, there are two images, and they are the Grim Reaper and the Weeping Woman. The Grim Reaper is a seed-yielding personification of death, and uh, this image is very appropriate to describe the death and the destruction that was going to be unleashed. In fact, the appropriateness of this mythological Grim Reaper in describing this text is actually quite shocking. Now, it is debated whether this particular portion of Scripture is prophetic or whether it was written after the event. We have mentioned many times that Jeremiah is not written chronologically. So either is possible, and it doesn't change the message of the text. For what it's worth, I tend to favor that this is prophetic. Now, the great destruction unleashed its first 
unveiled in verse 12. And then it's progressively revealed in more and more shocking and graphic detail throughout the text. But notice in verse 12, it says, The land perisheth and is burned up like a wilderness that none passeth through. So in other words, the land was desolate. It was completely ruined. It was like the wilderness. There was nothing but smoldering ruin. So what was once a thriving and booming city, a place that was once full of activity, was now a desolate ghost town. It's like some of those towns in the middle of Australia that used to be booming, whether it was because of the mines or some other industry, but then that industry is removed and the town grinds to a halt and goes into a state of decay. That's what would happen with Jerusalem. And such would be the extent that people would not go there. Okay, why would they come? There's nothing left. And so this particular judgment would cause other nations to ask, what did they do for the Lord to take such drastic action? And there's an interesting portion of scripture in Deuteronomy 29, and it's speaking of the curse of breaking the covenant. And it helps us to understand our text. And we'll come back Okay, to this portion of scripture a couple of times okay, throughout this study. But for now, I just want to read verses 23 and 24. And it says, And that the whole land thereof is brimstone and salt and burning, that it's not sown, nor beareth, nor any grass groweth therein, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Admar and Zedium, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and his wrath. Even all the nations shall say, Wherefore hath the Lord done this unto this land? What meaneth the heat of this great anger? So, so this gives us a graphic picture of the condition of the land after the Babylonians. Remember, they were the instrument in God's hand. They completed the task of judgment. When it was done, the land was like Sodom and Gomorrah after God judged it. Okay, death and decay filled the land. All beauty was gone. It was utterly desolate. Now, this judgment is further described in our text. Okay, remember in the wilderness, the Lord had provided manna for the people to eat. But in verse 15, we read that they would eat wormwood and drink water of gall. Okay, that's referring to poisonous substances. And they're both metaphors for suffering, disaster, and death. Verse 16 reveals that the people would be scattered, so they would be removed from the land. Many people would be killed, and the majority of survivors, they would be captives. They'd be taken into the land of Babylon, and that helps to explain the desolate nature of the land as revealed in verse 12. Then notice the description in verse 21. Okay, this is personifying death, and it's viewing death as a robber. It's coming through the windows and it's stealing life. It's a, it's a very graphic image. And notice that it isn't selective. It would take both the life of old and young, even children. And we read that not even the palace would be safe. Now what's interesting with this image is that it could well be dripping with irony. Because one writer, he, he made this point. He said, the idea that death might come through the windows has a significant parallel in Canaanite mythology. Remembering Israel were engrossed in this. 
Baal had to win his kingship by battle with the god Yam. But having won the victory, he built a palace of enormous proportions and lavish splendor. The architect proposed that a window be included. Baal resisted the idea for a time, but at last agreed. It was his undoing, for through the window came misfortune in the person of the god Mot, the god of infertility, death, and the underworld. And there is possibly a reflection of this Canaanite myth in these verses. So the Lord could be taking one of these myths that the people had believed and used it as an image of what was going to befall them. Death would enter through the window like a robber and would wreak havoc. And the extent of this havoc is revealed in verse 22. This time there's two agricultural metaphors employed. The first is that the bodies of men shall fall as dung on the field. And this seems to be picturing the extent. Okay? In a paddock, there's always a lot of dung. If you walk through a paddock where cows have been, you'll be dodging landmines everywhere. Okay? And furthermore, dung on the field remains uncovered. So this implies that the bodies would not receive a proper burial, and that was a great dishonor. Now, the second metaphor is where the grim reaper picture is particularly fitting. And notice that it mentions the harvest man. And the practice of the time was that the crop would be cut by hand. Okay, there was no harvesters, there was no headers like today. And the practice was, okay, one guy would have his side, he'd cut a handful, he would leave that handful. He'd move on, cut another handful, leave that handful, and so on. Someone else would come back through and pick up those bundles of grain. And the imagery here is that death would come through like the harvestman taking life, but no one would come through picking up. So again, they weren't given the honor of a burial, and that was a huge horror for a Jew. So you can see that this is not a very pretty picture. The Grim Reaper is going to wreak havoc. And the extent of this is conveyed in the second image which is weeping women we read in verse 17 that the mourning women would be summoned okay, these were the professional mourners now imagine that as a job okay you had to go to a funeral pretend to be sad and then make everyone else sad that would be a very depressing job it sounds like the type of job my mum would have threatened me with when i wasn't studying hard at school brennan you have to become one of those funeral mourners It wouldn't be nice. One writer described what these ladies would do. He says this, They used lamenting cries, bearing their breasts, flapping their arms, throwing dust on their heads, and disheveling their hair. So that they got right into it. And verse 17 stresses that the most skilled needed to be sought because of the huge loss. And furthermore, there wouldn't be enough professionals to mourn such devastation appropriately. So we see the need in verse 20 for them to train their daughters and their neighbors. So it's like in Australia when we have a skills shortage, we need more apprentices coming through. That's the idea. And the point being stressed is that so widespread and so deep was the devastation that it was impossible to mourn accordingly. Now in life, some things are more sad than others. We can testify to that. And it was impossible to shed enough tears to capture the horror of this particular scene. 
So they are the two images. Okay, secondly, let's move to one question. The text actually starts with a question, and it's an obvious one. Why did this happen? And it's interesting in Deuteronomy 29, which I referenced previously, the question is asked in verse 24, Even all nations shall say, Wherefore hath the Lord done this unto this land? Okay, so this is the why question. Why did the Lord do this? Verse 12 calls the supposed wise men to explain the situation, but he never gives an answer. So the Lord does in verses 13 and 14. And again, it's interesting because it's very similar to Deuteronomy 29. But notice the reason given. They had forsaken the law. Okay, they had no obeyed. In other words, they had broken the covenant that they had made with the Lord. Okay, that they made a covenant agreement. They said they would do this, do that, and not do this. Okay, but they had forsaken that. They'd broken the covenant. But notice, not only had they forsaken the Lord and departed from him, but they had replaced him. Okay, this is verse 14, which says, But have walked after the imagination of their own heart, and after Balaam, which their fathers taught them. Okay, and understand, this is always the pattern. When you stop living for the Lord, when you stop worshipping him, you will replace him with someone or something else. Okay, that, that's the universal pattern. We're all worshippers. There's no such thing as a human being who doesn't worship. Okay, that's how we're created. And hence, if one walks away from the Lord, we will be replacing him with something else. That's what we see with Judah. In fact, Judah, they were like a spiritual harlot. They weren't chasing other gods. That They built a religious harem and had all kinds of lovers. They were engrossed in idolatry. Okay? And the whole point that's stressed here in the reasons that the Lord gives is that Judah deserved this judgment. Judah had earned it. The question really is okay, not what have they done, but what haven't they done? As one author put it, the question is, what haven't they done? You name it, they've done it. Idol worship, idolatry, lying, child sacrifice, not praising God, prostitution, unfaithfulness, treachery, shady dealings, false preaching, not fearing God, covenant breaking, violence, greed, not walking in God's ways, hypocrisy, racism, murder, goddess worship, slander, and rejecting the word of God. Not very pretty description. In a word, they were stubborn and exhibited a defiant attitude toward the Lord, a rejection of his law, a preference of other gods, and a refusal to repent. There could be no question as to whether they deserve this. The evidence was damning. In a court of law, they stood no chance. That There was video evidence of them committing the crime. They had witnesses that they found the word a weapon. They had motive. They were guilty beyond a doubt, and no lawyer could get them off. The Babylonian judgment was deserved, and it was just. And what it reminds us is that our God takes sin seriously. Okay, our God's holy. He hates sin, and he will deal with it. Can understand such is his hatred for sin that he unleashed his wrath upon his son on the cross. It's hard to think of a greater 
example that illustrates God's hatred for sin. And understand no sin will remain undealt with ultimately. It will either be dealt by Jesus on the cross or in hell for all eternity. Okay, God is serious when it comes to sin. It must be and it will be punished. And Judah certainly learnt that the hard way. And it's in this particular context, right in the middle of sin, judgment, death, and devastation, quite a depressing and dark backdrop that were warned about improper glorying. So how are we to understand this in context? Well, remember, when it speaks of glory, as I mentioned earlier, to glory in something means to celebrate it, proclaim it, to boast about it, to have confidence in it, for it to be the source of one's contentment and happiness, to depend upon it. And hence, the sense seems to be this. Okay, Judah, you can depend on your wisdom, on your might, on your riches, all that you want, but it's not going to help you. It's not going to spare you from the judgment to come. And this makes sense because in verse 25, circumcision is mentioned. And they assume that all of this judgment talk coming from Jeremiah, it must be a hoax. It couldn't be true because they were circumcised. Okay? That They were God's people. They viewed this as a lucky charm. And hence they thought they could do whatever they want with no consequences. And we've seen something earlier in the book very similar when they viewed the temple as their lucky charm. Okay? They had misplaced confidence. Now, I find it interesting that wisdom, might, and riches are all things that are still gloried in today. Knowledge, power, money. These three seem to be the trifecta that mankind has always pursued. And this verse highlights a universal problem for mankind in that we glory in the wrong things. We place our confidence, trust, and faith in the wrong things. Objects. To word it differently, we look for meaning, purpose, fulfillment, and happiness in the wrong places. And understand, this verse not only condemns these three, but it's meant to reveal any misplaced confidence. So the point stressed in context is that these things won't help you when Babylon comes. Doesn't matter how smart you are. Doesn't matter how strong or powerful you are. Doesn't matter how rich you are. It's not going to help. And hence, it's pointless to boast in these things. It will prove nothing. Okay, but rather, moving to verse 24, you should glory in understanding and knowing God. Okay, that's the thing to boast in. Th- that is where you should place your confidence. And it's interesting, if you look back at verse 6, they refused to know the Lord. The word know, it's more than intellectual. It's not just knowing facts or information, but it's relational. It's intimate knowledge and understanding. It's a Hebrew word that was often used of the marriage relationship. Okay, so it's a relationship with the Lord. That's the only thing to glory in. The Apostle Paul would later say, 1 Corinthians 1.31, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Okay, that's the message of the text. And the point that's stressed in context is that judgment could have been avoided by only one way, 
And that was if they gloried in the Lord, if they boasted in him, if they had have pursued knowing Yahweh, okay, which is what true religion is all about. Okay, true religion is about knowing God. If they had have repented of their sin, if they had have returned to the Lord, delighted in him, placed their confidence in him, then the judgment could have been avoided. But since they rejected this, since they ignored this, okay, this was Jeremiah's whole ministry, God's wrath was going to be unleashed. They were going to experience his judgment and righteousness since they rejected his loving kindness. So that is how I believe it fits in the context. And from this, I'd like to draw out two points for your consideration. So number one, a word about salvation and witnessing. The people were not spared from judgment because they misplaced their confidence. They were glorying and boasting in something that could not save them. And the obvious application is that the only way one can be saved from the judgment to come, and the judgment that I'm speaking of is far more serious than Babylon, it's eternal punishment in hell, one will find themselves there if their confidence and trust is not in Christ. Okay, we understand that the Bible teaches okay, that there is only one way that we can get to heaven. There's only one way to be made right with God. And there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves, our wisdom, our power, our riches, our religion, our good works, whatever it may be. There's nothing that we are able to do to make ourselves right. Okay, it's all to do with Christ. The only way to be made right with God, to be spared from judgment, is to repent of our sin, place our faith and confidence in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. That's the only way of salvation. That's the message of the gospel. And if we're glorying or trusting in anything else, like Judah, we won't be spared from the judgment. And for the Christian, this teaches us at least two things. The first is this. It's humility. We need to remember... Okay, that we are Christians only because of Christ. Okay, it's nothing good that we have done. We have not earned it. We don't deserve it. There's absolutely nothing about ourselves to brag about. Our only boast is Christ. And my friend, that ought to keep us humble. You know, we are what we are by the grace of God. We possess both wonderful things both now and forever because of Christ, okay, and that ought to shatter all pride that can fester up within us. Okay, it's because of Jesus, not me. You know, and, and that should also grow our love for our Lord and Savior. Okay, and, and number two, it was also to help us with evangelism. Okay, mankind is prone to glory in something. Okay, we, we are all worshippers because we're created that way. So we are worshipping something, and that's a good thing to keep in mind as we're seeking to share the gospel. What false messiah is this person trusting in? Is it wisdom? Is it might? Is it riches? Is it something else? And furthermore, man and woman is trusting in something to be made right with God. And there are many substitutes that people put in the place of Jesus. Now, whether that be an outright substitute or whether it be 
Jesus plus something else, okay, whether it be one's intellect, power, riches, religion, family, heritage, okay, these things can be trusted in and be a barrier to receiving Christ. And hence we would do well to remember and identify these things that people trust in and with God's help seek to help others see these things and their utter inability to do that which they're trusting them to do. Okay, so that's the first point of application. The second is this. It's our proneness for cheap substitutes. Okay, even as Christians, we can end up glorying in things and others that are not Jesus. Okay, we can seek to find happiness, fulfillment, identity, satisfaction in, in these three things revealed in our text, in, in wisdom. Okay, that's your intellect in studying, in learning more and more, in might, okay, that is power, and in riches, okay, wealth, money. Or we can do this in a multitude of other things, whether that be relationships, whether that be sex, whether that be hobbies, your job, your kids, your spouse, your friends, your home, your body. And we could go on and on. And we end up seeking things that only Jesus can provide in other places. And it won't work. Okay, true and lasting happiness, contentment and fulfillment can only be found in pursuing Jesus Christ. Okay, in loving him more than anything else. In knowing him in deeper and more intimate ways. And my friend, we need to stop looking to inferior substitutes to provide only what Jesus can truly provide. Okay, and don't be fooled, we are all susceptible to this. Okay, it, it's all around us. We are bombarded with Jesus' replacements. But they ultimately won't work because nobody or nothing is like Jesus. Okay, and by his grace, may we repent of any cheap substitutes that may be creeping into our lives and may we be glorying in Christ, be boasting in him, our confidence in him, seeking our happiness, our fulfillment, our contentment, our identity in him. Because it is Christ alone who can satisfy the hunger and thirst of the human soul. No, nothing else can do that. And hence, may we be pursuing him passionately. May that be the number one priority of our life. Okay, for that is the only one that will never disappoint. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you uh, for, for this uh, portion of Scripture. And uh, Lord, I do pray that, that you help us uh, to apply uh, the, the message uh, that you had for us tonight, whatever that may be uh, for us as individuals. And uh, Lord, as we go our separate ways, please keep us safe until we meet again. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.